Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, So I am down in Sea Island, Georgia, for AEI's World Forum, which is entirely off the record, so I can't give little updates about what's been going on so far, although I will say that I was... I'm somewhat overserved last night and um, probably should not have started a cigar at nine something at night. But uh, I can say that I just listened to Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to us because the first part of it was actually on the record and being recorded. So um, I can say I was there and I listened to it. Um, but the Q&A stuff was all back off the record. So I love World Forum. I come here been coming here every year for about 10 years. Oh, I've been to basically every right-wing confab. I think, well, I, I shouldn't say that anymore because who knows what Star Wars Cantina events Charlie Kirk or um, Steve Bannon has put on, you know, that I haven't gone to, nor do I have any desire to go to. Um, but all those big ones I've been to. And I have to say, for various and sundry reasons, um, I think the World Forum is still the best one of them. Um, it's not the Davos World Economic Forum. These are different things. They're not connected. Uh, they're just unfortunately similarly named. But um, anyway, I very much doubt people want to hear me talk about why I like this better than like the Koch Brothers Conferences or the um, Dark Ages Weekend or or um, whatever that thing was. I can't remember what it was in L.A. Um, anyway, there are a lot of them. Um, I'm not saying the others are necessarily bad, but World Forum is my favorite. And um, it's why I also, every year I give this sort of starlight talk and it's always a lot of pressure because I always feel like I have to do something new and different and kind of wild. And um, I just am really, really, really bad, especially for speeches, um, preparing stuff in advance. I just, I've spent too much of my life as a pundit doing things at the last minute, doing things the day that they're due. Um, It's been a long time since I've written much of anything that... I didn't start the day it was due or most the day before. Um, you know, I haven't done a lot of long magazine pieces in a long time. And um, so anyway, I'm just saying this as a matter of throat clearing because it, it makes me nervous. And um, I don't normally get nervous about this kind of thing. So where to begin? I have now tried <laughs> for like, oh, so I'll back up. Uh, I was in Denver uh, for a dispatch meetup event. It was great. The hosts were great. The people were great. The turnout was great. We had people come from really far and wide. I mean, I was kind of blown away. You know, uh, one guy flew in from 
uh, Salt Lake City. Another guy, I think, drove from Milwaukee, um, and he wasn't named Steve Hayes, or wasn't named Hayes. Um, uh, another guy came up from New Mexico, and then lots and lots of people from the greater Denver area, including um, some old friends from my NR days who um, showed up. And uh, it was just a, it was a great event. I mean, I'm not saying our, me and Steve were particularly scintillating or whatever, in part because talk about something I have gone completely <laughs> um, uh, numb about is, you know, talking to Steve Hayes and, you know, uh, him making fun of me and me making fun of him. I mean, we're very close friends. I'm not trying to like diss Steve here, but like, you know, it's sort of like, like, you know how like lobster used to be a very working class food. It was like called, I think like, I know the Starkist is chicken of the sea, but it was sort of some sort of name like that because rich people hadn't decided that it was um, a delicacy for a while. And it was sort of a staple of working class families in New England or in Maine. And um, I'm not saying that hearing me and Steve talk is some sort of delicacy, some sort of lobster like deliciousness of the auditory variety or anything like that. My only point is this sort of as an analogy is like, if you ate lobster every day, you don't, you don't see what you, you sometimes forget what the big deal is. And so like podcasting and talking with Steve constantly all the time, like I'm glad other people enjoyed it. I was really heartened. So was Steve about how many people were interested in how the dispatch was doing, what our plans are, all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. So, uh, where to begin? Oh, so like I've now tried. That's right. I've now I didn't write the Wednesday G file. It really, it physically pains me when I miss those kinds of requirements, um, particularly given that the Wednesday G file goes to actual paid members of the dispatch community, and I feel like I have a special fiduciary obligation to hit those. But between doing the event and flying back and all sorts of logistical problems. Um, I ended up flying back to the wrong airport and had to get my car and traffic and yada, yada, yada. I just couldn't get it done. But also one of the reasons I couldn't get it done is like, I just find it too difficult to write about this Fox stuff. Part of it is, is that so many people have already chewed on the same leather. I mean, Nick Katagio's stuff has been great. And, um, People who are interested in this can hear all the juicy quotes and stuff. So it's not like I have some sort of like um, special access to the Dominion files that I find quotes that nobody else can find. And also everything is just so unbelievably obvious and transparent now at the, at, on a very large level. And you wouldn't think this, but I actually have a really hard time writing I told you so stuff. I want to be very clear. I told you so. One of the reasons I got subpoenaed by... Dominion is because I wrote a piece telling people, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago now, something like that, telling people that the people you see on Fox are lying to you. And I didn't mean that they were, you know, simply transmitting things that weren't true. I meant that they were, not everybody, not by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, a lot of the most MAGA-y kind of people were doing performance art. They were pandering. They were spoon feeding the audience, what they thought the audience wanted to hear. Um, it drove traffic to their, um, websites and got them, you know, booked more on, on Fox to be sure. Um, and, uh, I'm not saying that some of them didn't end up believing their own BS, but, uh, anyway, I wrote a piece I will put it in the show notes, uh, you know, basically making this argument. And I said, you know, screw it. I'm going to tell you this about Fox. And, um, 
I think that's what I'm almost positive. That's what got me subpoenaed by Dominion. And I don't blame them, right? I blame myself. Like when you say, I know for a fact that these guys aren't, are, are lying to you. Um, someone who is suing <laughs> the same organization for $1.6 billion is going to want to talk to you about that. Um, but I didn't have in mind stuff about the, you know, the Dominion stuff or any of that um, when I wrote that. Because um, I was talking about a process that started seven years ago. In fact, I think uh, I, I looked in one of these attempts to write about this thing, this stuff. Um, I think it's on March 12th, something like that. Seven years ago, I wrote this piece that um, I have no idea how it did traffic wise out in the universe. But among sort of my friends, colleagues, peers, my cohort, it, it went pretty viral. And I heard from a lot of people, uh, some of them angry, but most of them sort of in sympathy. This is the piece I wrote about how the watching in real time the right flip to Trump was like being in a body snatchers movie. And Charlie Sykes ran wild with it a little bit and other people ran wild with it, um, which is fine. I was flattering and, you know, I stand by the piece. But, you know, seven years ago uh, this month was really when you could really, it was like almost on a daily basis, you go to bed and the next morning, somebody who you had been talking to about what a disaster Trump is and what a, what a scumbag he is or how unfit he is to be president. And the next morning that you would see them on TV or you'd see something that they wrote or see them on Twitter talking about how, you know, whether it's Trump is awesome or simply that, sure, I've criticized Trump in the past, but, you know, we have to rally around the party. We have to, you know, stop Hillary Clinton at all costs. We have to ditch the old zombie Reaganism, whatever it was. People had lots of different gateway drugs um, into giving themselves the psychological permission structure to go back on what they said. But it was amazing how so many people just started flipping one by one. And anyway, this gets to this, you know, the, the and I, maybe I'll try and write about this today. I don't have a lot of time to write today. So I got to, I, I got to hone it down and be surgical. So if you, um, if I repeat myself in the Friday G file, I apologize in advance, but I keep thinking about, um, not so much invasion of the body snatchers, because now I live in a world where a lot of people are reverting back to normal. They're depodifying. You still have, and I don't mean in the Pedoretzian sense, I just mean they're no longer pod people. They're no longer telling me that I, I just don't get it, and it's a binary choice, and Trump is a counterpuncher, and he's got the best instincts, and he's a renowned negotiator, and all, all the usual BS. That's fading away, and people are like saying, reasonable things about how, you know, I don't think he's very electable or maybe there are better options. It's still hard for a lot of people to admit that he was always unfit to be president and that virtually all of his major legislative successes are attributable to the people around him that kept him from going crazier. It's one of the reasons why all these attacks on Mitch McConnell, um, particularly the recent stuff, you know, people gloating and celebrating and making fun of the fact that an old guy got a fell and got a concussion. Um, I mean, Jenna Ellis, how you can put yourself out there as like a, a crusading Christian evangelical leader and, you know, and just giddily celebrate um, that kind of thing is just, it's grotesque to me. And it's, you know, and it makes it very difficult for me to want to be part of a future Republican Party, you know, some sort of big tent thing when so many people have revealed themselves to just be bad people. I think Jenna Ellis is a bad person. 
Um, for you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, she posted, you know, so Mitch McConnell fell and uh, hit his head and has a concussion. And for an old, concussions are always serious, but for a really old dude, they're really serious. And she did this stupid tweet of a turtle falling down a flight of stairs, like a real turtle, or at least it was, looked like a real turtle, um, you know, bouncing down the stairs as it went. Um, saying uh, live, something like live footage of Mitch McConnell falling in some hotel or whatever. And it's just so cheap and sad and pathetic. And there's so many of these people out there. Um, it's amazing how the asshole left and the asshole right, that's the real horseshoe theory these days. So, uh, you know, I've been trying to read through these Dominion things um, because I keep trying to write about this and I just, I, I struggle to do it because I'm either, I sound like I'm gloating or I sound repetitive of stuff people have heard me say for seven frickin' years. Um, or I get too deep in the weeds and I end up going like crazy long about all sorts of specific tangents and stuff. But um, but when you read the, the filings, when you read the texts and all this stuff, and when you read how, um, you know, Tucker was entirely clear-eyed about who and what Trump is, right? When you... I, I don't think Hannity was. I think Hannity um, kept going back and forth in his own mind about what he thought about Trump. Um, I also just think going back and forth in Hannity's mind is not it's not a long walk. But uh, I keep thinking of that scene in Ascent of a Woman um, where Al Pacino, this was, you know, Al Pacino after he, you know, mid-career Al Pacino went back to overacting school and got a degree because he was such a subtle actor in the first part of his career. I mean, you look at how he undersold Michael Corleone, right? He just decided he was going to be a scenery eater for the second half of his career. So in Sign of the Woman, there has this big, you know, climactic speech at the end where he does this whole sort of, you know, I have been to the crossroads in my life and I always knew the right thing to do, but I didn't because it was too damn hard. And I keep thinking about that scene, you know, for all my criticisms of Sent to the Woman. It's a, it's a movie I like, but I got problems with it. Um, but I keep thinking about that line because when you look at this thing and then you just think about back on the last seven years and the incredible damage to conservatism in the country that, that Trump has wrought, it was obvious all along that this was going to go in a bad way, that this was heading in a bad direction, that this was not good for the country. And people had options all the way through to go a different way. And everyone, going back to the primaries in 2016, everyone thought that it was somebody else's job to do the right thing until it was too late. And then, you know, when they tried to do the right thing, it had no effect. That was the collective action problem in the primaries where everyone was sort of like, you know, where, you know, Jeb is attacking Rubio because he doesn't want to attack Trump and Cruz is using Trump as a blocking tackle forever. Um, and then it's too late for him to finally uh, attack him all the way through the general election, through the presidency. There were time after time after time moments where the obvious right decision Morally, right, or you know, sort of uh, characterologically, with your to maintain your integrity and speak truth to reality. I hate the phrase "speak truth to power." All along, there were opportunities to do it, and just 
time and time again, people took the other path because it was too damn hard. You know, the, the first impeachment, great opportunity to rid yourself of this troublesome Cheeto Jesus. Uh, the second impeachment, really easy, obviously clear point to say enough with this guy. Take the hit, sort of, you know, like a corporation, um, you know, write down, write off the the hit with the base that's going to be mad at you for voting for impeachment. Um, but then you can just just move on. Uh, time and time again, there, you know, uh, in in Trump's exile, when he says we should, you know, revise the Constitution to reinstall him president, uh, when he sits down with an as dinner with a neo Nazi, right? Uh, time and time again, there are these opportunities for everyone to say, okay, this is going to be hard, but if we all join hands and jump together, um, we can finally put this sorry chapter behind us. And they just don't do it. They don't do it because it's hard because they think. Um, you know, I remember remember Mitch McConnell, who, again, I'm a defender of Mitch McConnell, but like, you know, his thinking in the second impeachment was uh, the Democrats, you know, the Democrats are going to take care of this guy for us. We don't need to do this. Um, you know, and then ultimately, you know, he rhetorically indicts and convicts Trump and then votes to um, absolve him. And just a terrible mistake. I'm fully cognizant of the reality that it might have cost uh, McConnell any chance of uh, becoming Senate Majority Leader again. But look what happened anyway. By not destroying Trump, by not sort of throwing him off the voting him off the island, he didn't get to become Majority Leader regardless, right? I mean, like, because Trump screwed up again and got Herschel Walker the nomination, got all of these Island of misfit toys, buffoons, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters and all the rest got them nominated instead of safe, easy candidates who could have been um, nominated to the Senate and had given Mitch McConnell a three, four seat majority. So, yeah, look, I mean, I understand doing a straight line projection from impeachment. Mitch McConnell thought he was doing the smart thing, but it turned out that time and time again, doing the smart thing played out as dumber than doing the right thing. And I know I'm repeating, but there's no, when we're talking about all this stupid Trump stuff and all this stupid Fox stuff, it's very difficult for me not to repeat myself when I've taken such unrelenting grief and BS from so many people for so long for saying all of these things that are now just appearing in black and white on the page and utterly confirming the stuff that I've been saying for a long time. And again, I'm not just saying it about Fox. I've been saying this stuff about audience capture with cable news channels forever. I've been saying this stuff about the problem with um, narrow casting over broadcasting of the sort of following politics as a form of entertainment. I mean, go back at the, I mean, read the friggin' book I wrote. It's full of this stuff. And so, it's, you know, when, when I'm getting grief for years and losing friendships and losing money, you know, and, and, and sort of starting my life over professionally to start the dispatch because of of these positions I've taken. And then when you just have it all spill out in black and white and the people in some of these people's own words, it's very, very difficult not to sort of take a little ownership from for having said this stuff all along. And so my point is, if you go back and you look at these these filings, it's like a microcosm of this larger 
dynamic, you know, what is it? The, the, the golden ratio or the Fibonacci series. It's like, you can look at a tiny, 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 tiny little fraction of a conch cell or a coastline where you can zoom out a um, hundred thousand fold. And it's the same pattern and the same um, shapes. Uh, that's how I feel about this is that this is like a little segment of a much larger conch, conch shell. And um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google, I don't know, conch shells and Fibonacci series or something, you'll see what I'm talking about. And so you have these, you know, <laughs> you have these emails and these texts going around saying, okay, Laura, Sean, and Tucker, they should give a joint statement saying the election, that Biden won the election and put this thing to bed um, because this is getting out of hand. And then it doesn't happen because it's just too damn hard, right? You have Tucker talking about how Trump is a destroyer, Trump, um, how he hates Trump, how we need to get rid of Trump, blah, 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 blah. But he's not going to say it on TV, right? And you have Rupert saying time and time again, got to get these crazies off the air, uh, but then Mike Lindell has got some of that sweet, sweet pillow money. Um, and Rupert's like, yeah, got to let him back on. He, he gives us a lot of money for ads. Um, these guys knew, I mean, like they, they all but say explicitly, we know what the right thing to do is, but it's just too damn hard. I think I talked about this last week a little bit, but you know, this, the, the way in which these guys, these, the opinion hosts, Laura and, and Tucker and, um, Sean internalized Trump's persecution complex to the point where, you know, in these latest filings, it just comes through how they feel, you know, oppressed and aggrieved and persecuted by, you know, the news side, specifically Chris Starwalt and Bill Salmon, right? These guys who make a tenth of what they make, right? I mean, like, um, you know, Sean's worth a quarter billion dollars, at least at this point. Um, it's kind of hilarious. He used to, when I was, at, you know, in, the, in, in 2016, when I would criticize Trump, Sean would do this whole populist, more pop, you know, you know, prolier than thou BS thing about how you and your National Review guys on your cruises and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, Sean hasn't flown commercial in 10 years. And he's like trying to pretend that he's a man of the people making fun of a bunch of underpaid National Review writers um, because we ran cruises to make money to keep the magazine afloat while he's defending um, this, you know, allegedly billionaire um, plutocrat um, with his own planes and his, you know, all his, it was just such nonsense. Anyway, these guys make a lot of money. I don't begrudge people who make a lot of money. I like people who make a lot of money. Um, I would like to make a lot more money. I'm not saying I... Do I have a comfortable life? I do, but like, you know, I'm a capitalist and that's all fine. But the idea that like Tucker, the heir to the, was it the Swanson dinner fortune who has his own Island in Maine and um, makes tens of millions of dollars a year, I assume. You know, all these people are, uh, you know, aggrieved and oppressed because they have the most highly rated cable shows because uh, those damn pinheads over on the news division think that you shouldn't put lies on air. And I think if it were um, not for that sense of grievance, that just incredibly human and no less pathetic for being human, you know, reluctance to admit you were wrong, um, reluctance to admit that somebody was actually 
doing the right thing for the right reasons and you weren't, I think they would have admitted that, um, or at least would have been a lot more likely to admit that this stolen election stuff was bogus, which again, they all believed in private. They all knew in private. They just didn't have the courage or the integrity to say it in public. And it's very hard for me to forgive any of that stuff, just given, you know, the grief and the hassles that I've been put through, you know, the crappy things that Tucker has said about me um, and my colleagues, and then just having this total vindication that they were liars and they were lying purely for their own. I I think the vulgar Marxist stuff that they all did it for money is wrong. And I've talked about that before, but uh, they were doing it all for their own selfish purposes. And they thought so, you know, all of this proletariat, all of this, you know, forgotten man stuff that they all spout is all garbage, right? I mean, it's like they keep talking about, oh, the deplorables, you know, what a terrible thing um, to call people and all that. And I I give a rat's ass about Hillary Clinton. That's not I'm not defending Hillary Clinton saying it. But they're constantly talking about how they say, they think so little of you, right? They so think so little of Tucker's audience or Sean's audience. They think so little of the deplorables or the hardworking American people. And yet the whole reason Fox is in this mess is because those people who claim to be talking about how smart and decent and wonderful their audiences are, don't think enough of their audiences to tell them the truth and think that their audiences can't ha- handle it and that they they gussy it up and all this nonsense about respect the audience, right? Respect our brand and all that. What that really means is that their audience is a bunch of snowflakes in their eyes, right? They think their audience needs trigger warnings. They think their audience uh, needs safe spaces, they don't use those terms, but that's exactly the concept. You know, I went back and I, I wrote my LA Times column about this. I, if you go and look at the, um, if, go search on the Fox News website for the term, you know, safe space or trigger warning um, or any of those kinds of phrases. And there are thousands of articles and there are plenty of these things. Remember the, remember the, the unpleasant looking uh, feminist woman who drops to her knees and screams um, no, because Trump won in 2016. It's a very common gif on Twitter. Lots of people on the right loved it. It was a perfect drink liberal tears moment kind of thing. That's how these guys view Trump voters as the same sort of, you know, can't handle reality, uh, need to be coddled, you know, fragile safe spacers. And they just use different language about it. And, um, but it's the same concept. And, this gets me back to this both sidesism thing is like, I think a lot of our culture's problems are our culture's problems. They aren't left-wing problems. And they aren't right-wing problems. They are our, our culture's problems that have different manifestations on the left and the right. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation 
or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've been meaning to dive deeper and deeper into a bunch of this ESG and chip stuff. I know Scott Linsicum has written a bunch of things and I have them saved to, to pour through. But I, I think there's this one way to just simply think about it is, you know, I, I, I am more supportive. I'll back up. Um, you know, this argument about uh, economic, social and governmental, right? That's what ESG stands for. Um, it's a very old argument. Again, there are very few new arguments. Uh, we just come up with new buzz phrases and think the buzz phrases represent new ideas when in reality they are just new labels on the same old crap with a few tweaks to the ingredients, right? Now with fructose corn syrup instead of cane sugar, um, but it's still Coke, you know, still Pepsi. Um, and so before there was the ESG stuff, there was the corporate responsibility or social responsibility stuff that Milton Freeman debated for decades. Um, you know, and before that, there was all sorts of versions of this kind of thing um, in the New Deal. You know, that's why the New Deal was uh, so into creating cartels um, that um, and and even before the New Deal, remember the New Deal was based on the Wilson administration's um, war socialism and the War Industries Board, where you had these dollar a year men, these captains of industry who sat at the table and out of a sense of corporate responsibility and patriotism, melded corporate policy with government policy. 
You know, this is this is the original insight I had that made me want to write liberal fascism in the first place. I originally wanted it to be an economics book. So the, anyway, these ideas go way, way back. And yeah, they, they, they change in terms of their cultural context with every generation, but the underlying questions are largely the same. Part of the point that I never appreciated as much in, Wil in Milton Friedman's arguments was that, all right, so you know, I've talked about it a million times here, you know, the old Will Rogers thing about how democracy is the least worst form of government. You know, this is the sort of Jonah Goldberg, Kevin Williamson, Charlie Cook view of of liberal democracy in in the sense that it's it's not that it's so great. I mean, I should take it back of democracy because the liberal part is great. Um, and I mean, then the classically liberal part, limited government, free markets, pro innovation, fundamental protection of fundamental rights, all that kind of stuff. That part's great um, and good. Right. But the democracy part. Democracy, if we just actually mean sort of lever pulling, ballot casting, you know, election stuff, right? Not the sort of grand poetry of what we call, you know, democracy, but really just sort of the democratic process, um, a means of, of hiring people to work in the government. The best thing that democracy has going for it is it's a hedge against really bad outcomes. It is not that it guarantees really good outcomes. It is a way to prevent authoritarianism, totalitarianism, various forms of tyranny. It is a way to hold, and it's obviously if you look at places like Chicago um, um, or most big cities these days, uh, uh, it's not necessarily great at it, but it is a means of holding um, parties and officials accountable. And that's good, right? But holding people accountable for their screw-ups doesn't guarantee great policies. It just is a good way to protect against the continuation of terrible policies. It's sort of like this point I've been making for years about education. You know, the reason why Jews and Asians and, and, and other immigrant groups that are really into education, the reason they're really into education is not because they want their kids to get super rich. It's because they want to guarantee that their kids don't get super poor, right? You know, you're the Jewish mother who wants their kid to become a doctor doesn't expect that their doctor is going to parlay their um, comfortable living into some investments that make them a billionaire. They just know that like being a doctor is a good way to be pretty, pretty sure you'll never be poor. You can always use that skill. There's always a demand for a doctor. It's sort of like my father-in-law's line about, yeah, but can you eat it? Right. I mean, there's just certain things that are hedges against the worst case outcomes. And that's sort of how I view um, democracy, um, the narrow, you know, technical, pure democracy kind of point. I'm not talking about, you know, liberal democratic capitalism and the grand sweep of things. The reason I bring that up is like Friedman took this position that the only thing CEO should be concerned with is improving shareholder value. That's their job. And everything else is not in their lane, right? And that is taken by the left and others, um, including a bunch of people, I'll be less pejorative, um, on the right these days, that is taken to be like um, a license for cruelty and greed. That's not how Milton Friedman meant it, right? I mean, like returning value, profits, whatever, to shareholders requires some at least modest good corporate citizenship, right? I mean, if you're 
regularly killing your employees or poisoning your customers, uh, that's not a great business model, right? There, there's certain sort of like constraints imposed by the market itself that um, make some of the cartoonish hypotheticals about where this could lead kind of ridiculous. Then you add in the fact that part of being a good corporate leader is making sure that you don't violate the law, right? So progressives seem to think that like, Whenever it's this debate, they kind of forget that there are a gazillion and ten regulations governing what a corporation can do. And if a corporation violates those regulations, it is going to hurt returns of profits to shareholders. And so, like, the, the constraints, the harnesses that are on corporations um, are such that uh, it's okay to say CEOs should focus entirely on um, returning value to shareholders, right? Profits to shareholders. And because rightly understood, that means making good products, right? That means um, having a workforce without a huge amount of turnover because uh, that's expensive. Um, that means not poisoning the environment because that can land CEOs in jail and it can get, levy fines and, Get and invite boycotts, right? So there are constraints from outside that a CEO has to abide when he's doing this thing that people, you know, decry as so greedy. But like the part that I didn't fully appreciate is that, again, it's having an objective standard of merit is what keeps CEOs honest, right? It's what keeps um, them focused. It's sort of like this, uh, you know, this move to start abolishing the SAT, by getting rid of the SAT, all you're doing is saying that administrators are now even more free to use their own subjective judgment about what kinds of students to admit, right? And so all of this stuff, Buy America, ESG, DEI, these are just fancy ways of saying we want more subjective and therefore uh, essentially unreviewable criteria for decision-making by corporate leaders, by government people, by investors, right? That's this part of this, this insane idea of allowing um, the people who handle public pensions to consider ESG and their investments. You can be as fancy with all the labels. You can use social justice all you want. All it is is a way of saying there are no objective standards to, to second-guess our decisions because we just want the power to do what we want and help the people that we want to help and scratch the backs of the people we want to scratch and blah, 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 blah. And you go down the list. If you have an SAT, that constrains how far you can go. It shortens your leash. It narrows your options for who you can admit to a school. Um, if you have the standard that says returning value to shareholders, you know, that profit and earnings are the things that you're going to be judged on. It's a way of constraining CEOs from just simply saying, you know, you know, my nephew runs a soup kitchen. Let's give him um, $500,000 or whatever. Or, um, you know, my, my um, wife is on the board of some uh, green energy startup and, um, we, uh, you know, we're allowed to take ESG into account. So this gives me an excuse for helping a friend that otherwise I wouldn't be able to. 
it is just simply giving a license to do what you want. So it shouldn't be any shock that like this Chips Act thing is actually, you know, in the, its implementation, wrote about this last week, I think, is festooned with sort of progressive giveaway stuff about, you know, providing daycare this and whatever that. I mean, like it's, it's you know, the whole point of uh, the moral equivalent of war argument, which I have been decrying for a long time now, is that the assumption is that in a war, everyone's incentives are aligned. Everyone knows what the right thing to do. And everything that furthers the objective is desirable and justifiable. And everything that gets in the way isn't. And there's a reason why people in power love moral equivalent of war arguments, because it basically says you are allowed to do whatever the hell you want to do. And no one and anyone who stands in the way um, is unpatriotic or is against victory or is for climate change or whatever. The CHIPS Act was sold essentially as so much pub industrial policy is with moral equivalent of war arguments. It's like, you know, we're in the strategic competition with China and they're going to take Taiwan and take all these chip manufacturing plants. And so we got to, we have to be ready to fight these fights in the 21st century and we have to be strategically competitive and they're going to be peeing in our cornflakes. And so this is why we need to build this thing here, even though, you know, yes, it's industrial policy, but it's justifiable, not on economic terms, but on national security grounds and yada, yada, yada. And they pass it with a sense of crisis and the sense of urgency. And then once it's passed, they're like, oh, and by the way, anybody who wants any of this Chips Act money, they need to have really generous daycare centers and they need to invest in local job retraining and yada, yada, yada. yada. I'm, and I'm not saying that those programs are necessarily bad, but the idea that the government, that a bunch of people in the Biden administration know with a certainty um, and as an objective fact that this is the best way to, to have a um, uh, a really fast moving program for developing very high end chips is just ludicrous. It's pure crisis is a terrible thing to waste kind of thinking. And everywhere you look, all of these fancy new terms and labels and um, justifications um, just boil down to trying to get uh, uh, around objective criteria for um, performance, for results, um, for expenditures. And that's why I have this sort of like newfound respect. I mean, look, I always loved Uncle Milty, but, you know, Milton Friedman's bluntness about really there's only one standard that you can hold CEOs, that CEOs should be held accountable to, just makes a lot more sense to me these days. Um, in the similar way that like, it would not bother me in the slightest if universities went back to, um, I shouldn't say go back to it cause I don't think they ever really had it, but, um, went back in the direction of your SAT scores and your grades, that's what gets you into college. That's it. Nothing about skin color, religion, life experiences, digging latrines for elephants in Botswana. Um, none of that stuff, right? Uh, here's a good analogy that used to, people used to talk about a lot. You know, in a lot of symphonies, um, it used to be that um, auditions were done where the applicant was behind a curtain. So you couldn't see if they were male, they were female, uh, black, white, Asian, whatever. All you heard was the music. And 
that gotten rid of, at least I think with most symphonies, um, because of all the woke social justice stuff, right? And like somehow um, a black person playing the violin, their race was so important for a diverse symphony that you couldn't take the risk of judging them solely by the quality of the music. You had to sort of see to make sure that you weren't making the mistake of, of, of accidentally giving it to a better violinist. Right. And I'm not trying to traffic in some stereotype about this or, or about blacks and classical music or any of that kind of stuff, but it just as a matter of, as a fact of logic, if you think the music is the only thing that matters, then you shouldn't have any problem with the curtain approach. Um, if you're, it, it's the people who got rid of the curtain who worked from the premise that somehow it was institutional racism to be colorblind in selecting people for your orchestra or your symphony or whatever. All of these f fancy new concepts are really just a way of saying objective criteria need to go, objective notions of merit are inherently flawed, and so long as our kinds of people are making the decisions, we should let people have arbitrary power to make decisions. Now, the, the folly of this will eventually be learned when these institutions are not run by um, the kinds of progressives who put these uh, policies into place in the first place. I mean, no one, there's a big Charlie Cook point, but like nobody... Nobody had any problem that the governor had so much control over higher education in Florida um, when it was used by Democrats, right? It's only when, or by sort of establishment Republicans who didn't want to rock the boat, but when Republicans, when DeSantis starts using the power of the state um, to impose his vision the same way the left tries to impose their vision, then all of a sudden it's fascism, right? Well, if it's, if it's, if it's fascism to impose your values, to use state power to impose your values from the right, it is not obvious to me why trying to impose your values from the left isn't, I dare I say, liberal fascism. Um, and now we've sort of come full circle. All right, I got to go. Um, there's an event that I got to go listen to. I got to wrap this up. But um, a couple things, um, some house cleaning I think there is still time for you to um, grab um, uh, an application if you're a college student to the summer AI summer honors program. Again, I, I can't recommend it enough. For the, if you're the kind of nerdy wonky kid who listens to this podcast on a regular basis, or if your kid is the kind of kid who you think would benefit from being that kind of kid, going to the summer honors program is a great thing to do. Um, I think you got like five days to apply. Second, we are about to switch our platforms for the podcast. We're hoping that it will fix all of the glitchy little problems that we had with Stitcher. We're moving to Spotify, but please let us know if you have problems. There may be a little bit of a hiccup. You may have to like refresh your subscription. We don't know, right? Because the world of the podcast technology is weirder than you might think. But we think it's the right call. We think it's going to be great. We think it's going to be good for us in all sorts of ways. And in fact, one of the ways it's going to be good for us is uh, we can now, under Stitcher, we weren't allowed to do direct sales between us and the dispatch for advertising. They had to handle all of our advertising. And now we can do some direct sales. So like if you 
want to advertise on the dispatch, you can reach out to us. Um, you know, if you think it's a specific, uh, our audience, which has, I'll just be blunt. I know for a fact that there are a bunch of congressmen, ton of congressional staff, at least maybe a half dozen senators who listen to this podcast. I know a lot of judges and top hundred lawyers listen to advisory opinions. Lots of people in the sort of policymaking and, and elite community for some reason listen to our podcasts <laughs> or at least listen to this podcast. I, I'm a little baffled by it sometimes. Um, so if you want to reach that audience, um, this is a great place to advertise. Also, if you just happen to be associated with some of the products that I love anyway, the ability to me to be a sincere pitch man for say Sober Mesa cigars or Jameson's Irish whiskey, particularly Black Barrel, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I out on here all the time anyway. So if you're interested in advertising, you can drop us a line, just drop an email to sales at the dispatch.com. That's sales at the dispatch.com. I was going to make a soupy sales joke, but I think you spelled it differently. With that, I'm super grateful to everybody. I, I really do apologize if I'm either repeating stuff that ended up in the G file, so I can get the G file done or repeating stuff from last week, but that's just because of the haze I'm in. And I'll talk to you next time. B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay. Okay. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.